I'm Lemuel Gonzalez, Repentant Sinner, and along with Amity Armstrong, your heavenly host, I invite you to find a place in the pew for today's Painless Sunday School lesson, Without Works. We are so glad you are back with us this week as we bring you something new and a beloved classic segment, or as classic as a three-episode podcast can be. Let's start this week with a new segment where we'll learn about a facet of Christian faith, its origins, its meanings, and maybe dispel some outdated or inaccurate notions. This is a segment we're calling The More You Know. The Last Supper. We've all seen the pictures, the paintings, the cover of the Da Vinci Code. But what is the Last Supper? When is the Last Supper? And why? Why is the Last Supper the Last Supper? Let's talk about the Last Supper. What is the Last Supper? The Last Supper is an event that happened where Jesus spoke to his disciples immediately before his arrest and his trial and crucifixion. Okay. So this is, when we're talking about Last Supper, this is Jesus's last, this is Jesus' last known meal. This is, well, his last meal with his disciples. And it happened, it was a Passover supper. Okay, so that is one of the things uh-huh. I think that gets confusing for people. Right. Is that Easter and Passover are often sort of commingled. Right. And it was it's sort of unclear as to why that they are two different things. Right, Passover different is things. a very distinct thing in the Jewish faith. But Easter happens three days after the crucifixion, mm-hmm. which happens just after the Last Supper, right. which is a Passover meal. The way that it used to be remembered was Thursday, Friday, and then Sunday. That was the way that... So Thursday would be the day... Maundy Thursday. And that's uh, how it's described in certain church calendars, but it celebrates Jesus meeting with the disciples, having Passover, and then immediately afterwards they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's arrested by temple guards and put on trial. That's because Judas kissed him? Well, so this is what happens. Judas has decided at this point, Judas is very much, from what we can gather, there's not a lot of information on why he turns on Jesus. It's not just dollar dollar bills, y'all? No, it seems like he believes that Jesus is betraying the cause. And the cause would be? From what we can get from the Gospels. And again, for people who aren't familiar with it, there are three synoptic Gospels that pretty much tell the same story. And then there's John's Gospel, which at times is not radically different. It encapsulates the same period of time with some of the same events, but tells them with a lot more detail or sometimes a lot less. When you put the stories together, what it tells you is that Judas really believes that the cause is the cause of what Jesus was teaching was his, that somehow he, was, he wasn't having integrity in his own cause. We've all seen the major painting, the right. da, Vinci's da Vinci painting, painting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also it's in dozens, hundreds, yeah. thousands maybe, yes. of other of their paintings. It and the Pieta are probably right. the two, and maybe... The crucifixion itself is oh, a I guess lot, so. there's a lot of artwork, and it was a... Back when the church was commissioning famous artists to cover that for churches, for chapels, you would see a lot of representations. Remember that a lot of people in European countries where this was spreading, and then also in some African countries, weren't literate. And right. so the so pictures were used pictures. as icons to, to represent things so that uh, you could understand what was supposed to be going on, and, and sermons were preached from the panels and the paintings themselves. So when did this happen? As close as, and they've been able to do it with a weird degree of accuracy, between 30 and 33 AD 
is when they're thinking it did happen. And what constitutes zero? Zero would be the birth of Jesus. If we're looking at AD in so terms of So this is anatomy. all a little bit wibbly wobbly in Just, terms of time, yeah, exact but, years. But it's very, it's actually, when you think of how long ago the event was, it's actually pretty interesting that you can get that close. That they can get that close to it, yeah. that is true. But like, mm-hmm. if the sky was as the Bible says it was during his birth, uh-huh. it wasn't in December. So everything's right. sort of skewed a little bit if we're using the Julian calendar. That's fine. Right. We'll probably get into that at some point. But right. so April... You say? Yeah, sort of April. The spring right. of 30 to 33 AD. We also refer, think that Jesus mm. was about 33 when he died. He might have been, yeah, that's that's following that logic. He calls, he tells the disciples to prepare. He goes to Jerusalem, which they're warning against because they know that the very conservative forces of the Jewish church at the time basically wanted to execute him, and they'd already tried. So he uh, knew his time was yeah, there. Yeah, he knew it. But he also knew that... His life was going to end right, and again badly. He knew he wasn't making it to if old we, age. If we look at it as in terms of like I believe, and he, it was his destiny, or the way that you could see it, uh, being a more secular person, he knew that this was not going to go on forever, and he knew what was going to happen. Right. To him. If I keep right. agitating, and he's not going to take me able, out. Right. He's not going to dodge it for the rest of his life. So he's going to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen to him, and he wants to celebrate his Passover dinner with his disciples. And these are the 12, mm-hmm. including the Judas. 12. Judas right. is at the table. Judas is at the table. So what happens is, is that he calls them together, and then a series of things happen that are listed in the Synoptic Gospels and also in the Gospel of John. At one point, he strips to his waist and begins washing his disciples' feet, um, which was a very common thing to do, to have, like, for instance, if you had someone coming into your house, you'd have a servant wash your guest's feet. You so wouldn't do it, typically. You wouldn't do it. What he did was actually do the work of a servant. So at this point, they've all, they referred to him as master all the time. Right. And then he goes and washes their feet. And so they're all kind of shocked when he's asked, why are you doing this for us? He says, because that way you'll have no excuse not to do it for each other. Yeah, I guess so. If you call me master and I do this for you. Then you can do it for each other. That people that you consider equals Mm -hmm. or lesser than you would do the same for them. Right. He goes on to give them a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. He gives, according to John, a discourse where he calls them friends, no longer servants. So now he's he's introducing this very egalitarian element to what would become the early church. And then he presents the Passover. And what he does is something that's still to this day very strange, his language, because Passover harkens to an older ritual. Yes. When the Hebrews were you know, there were slaves in Egypt. Yes. And Pharaoh, so resistant to letting the children of Israel go, refuses to do it one final time. So God does something really horrible. Yes. And he kills the firstborn of all the children living in Egypt, but he passes over any house where there is the blood of a lamb smeared over the doorposts. Right. The lamb had to be without blemish or without spot, and they had to eat unleavened bread because they didn't have time to need it and let it rise because right. they were about to go out. They're, this was going to be the final It move. was like, the kids are going to get slaughtered, right. and then you make a run for it. Like, right. well, exactly. Pharaoh, because Pharaoh, of course, had an oldest son right. that was taken in the massacre. Mm-hmm. So, well, he is distracted by grief. Mm-hmm. Get your ass out of Egypt. Right. Now is your chance. I'm opening the door. 
DUI's gotta go. Now, there's a lot of ways of interpreting that story. Some people think that it wasn't God going down and killing children. Uh, there well, that's is, probably... There's interpretations that lean towards Moses. Some of his actions are very violent at times. And that's generally how it's seen, that his agents, there were Hebrews as slaves in every Egyptian household. Right. Oh, so they rose up. Right, they the, did the it. The Hebrews... Like a really nasty warning to the Egyptians, there's a Jew in every house in your, in yeah. your country... And if they decide they want to kill all your children, there's nothing you can do to stop them. So again, it was a lamb. It was without spot or blemish. Their blood was put on the doorposts. Jesus then says, takes the bread, the Passover bread, take, eat, this is my body broken Which is, for you. Um uh, matzah, right? right? And That's... then he, t- well, probably not at the time. I'm sure it was an antecedent of that. Oh, okay, and... but it's like a right. flat bread that yes, we're talking about. Yes, it's an unleavened bread. And then he takes the cup and says, this is my blood. This sounds very strange out of context, which is why I want to explain the Passover lamb. Oh, he's the lamb. He's the lamb. Without spot or blemish, it gets sacrificed to protect you from evil or protect you from the wrath of what you deserve. Frankly, the Egyptians got what they deserved, in a way. I mean, the I children mean, didn't get it. But, those so, kids were not the ones. Right. But. So this is a symbology that you'll see in old churches. You'll see a lamb all the time, or yeah. being referred as the lamb of God. It comes from that idea that he's the sacrificial lamb, he's and he's going to make himself the sacrificial lamb. Okay. So he says, this bread is my body, right. eat and of my body, wine, is, it's wine. It was wine at the time. Uh, is my blood, right. drink of my blood. Right. So again, it sounds very gruesome and strange, but it had a different context for the people who were there. Now, according to where there's not necessarily conflicts, but bits and pieces of the story that get broken up, is that in one version, it seems like Judas leaves the table before they have this. So there's just had by the 11. So he, we don't know that he, if he took... And this this mm. is the, the basis of communion. Right, this right? is the basis of communion. Okay. So we don't know if that first communion involved mm. Judas or not. Right. There's a, it seems to suggest that at one point, he says a bunch of... Again, in John's story, which was written much later, as we talked about when we talked about the Bible, the original gospel stories were based on survivors telling people their accounts and it all sort of being put together as a story. John was written much later when it was becoming literature, and that's why there's all these sort of flights of literature. John opens with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and it puts it in all sorts of mystical terms. So by then, it's already codifying into what we have now. Originally, it's people telling their story. When you think about what the Last Supper was, it was this Passover dinner. And why it's important to us is a couple of reasons. First of all, it seems like he institutes the church there. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. So he's suggesting that you're going to be gathering together to do this right into the future. And that seems to be where he's telling people, because he never at any point says, I'm going to make a church and make it. No, he's telling them now, when you do this, when you yeah, gather together, you you're gather going to together, do this, yeah. and you're going to remember me, and I'll be there with you in it, which is where everything went into controversy. So my mother, born and raised in a Massachusetts Irish Catholic family, right. At our first communion, which I don't know, she was young, mm-hmm. single digits, we're talking, was given the Eucharist, the wafer, mm-hmm. and the wine. I think it was probably juice, but well, right. you know what? It was the 70s. It was probably. <laughs> right, who knows? And. The grappa. They said, uh-huh. body of Christ, blood of Christ, uh-huh. and she freaked 
out, uh-huh. crying, and uh, what I was only, could only assume, like I picture her <laughs> in this beautiful white dress at her first communion, uh-huh. crying because she believed, because the Catholics mm. tell you right. that the priest has the power to change this wafer and this wine mm. into the literal body and blood of Christ, right. and she thought she was eating people, and she cried and panicked in church. And I don't know, I think that that might be why she ended her life as a non-practicing right. Catholic. She didn't want to eat anybody. This was not so, part of the plan. Which churches uh-huh. do practice communion? All Christian churches practice communion. So this in is every church, there is a, 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 a cabinet with some right. wafers right. That are and some juice. Right. Probably juice now. Right. It depends. <laughs> and then there's the idea of open communion and uh-huh. closed communion. I've, these are terms uh-huh. that I've heard. Well, okay, so... All Christian churches do this because this is the only rite that he actually leaves us. This is that it. Jesus, this is the, all you have to do in right. church, technically. The only is one to that take the communion. only one that Jesus institutes because baptism is another one, but that was instituted. He was baptized himself. He creates this. This is what it is going forward. This is what unites the church as a church. <laughs> so all Christian churches do it. There's a difference in the belief of what it means, though. Right. Well, let's the, start with open and closed. Right. If I, as a non-baptized person, uh-huh. go into a church, I would not take communion. You, you probably shouldn't, no. They don't want, no church wants they me want to. They don't want you to do that. They don't want you to do that. Uh-huh. If I was baptized in a church, uh-huh. but was visiting another church, right. open communion at that church would indicate that I would be able to take communion at right. that church. Closed communion would indicate mm-hmm. that they reserve their communion for mm-hmm. members of their church, which is why, because as an unchurched person, uh-huh. I didn't realize that you like sign up. Oh, yes. Like you're no. on the rolls of a church, Wh- which right. I knew was the case with like Mormonism, because mm-hmm. when you move to a new place, the Mormons mm-hmm. give you like a directory of all the other Mormons in the in the area. Yeah. That could be true of churches as well. They keep people like on rosters. The Catholic Church has a list of churches that you can take communion in that are not Catholic. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. They do. So that's um, that's what I was talking about between right. open and closed communion. What, what it's, and it's, this is going to be kind of fun because there's a lot of communion stories. I remember there was one time that my now ex-wife was visiting church for uh, Easter Sunday, and they were taking communion, and I just like jumped in front of her like don't, don't. And it's like and and at first she thought I was being mean. I'm like no no. Listen to the words they're saying. In doing this, I accept the suffering of Christ and I mimic it. For, Especially on right. Easter. Like you're like no 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 no. You don't want to do this yeah. because I still take it. I take it very seriously. In that I I don't think a person who doesn't know what they're doing should practice this because it's it's partaking and tying you into this. Right. It is like a mini baptism every right. time. You yeah. are sort of reconfirming. Right. Your belief and your willingness to sacrifice yourself should, like he sacrificed himself and to partake in that. And I'm going, yeah, I don't think anybody who doesn't believe in that should do that. I'm not going to commit myself to to a faith I don't have. So now we come to one of my favorite religious terms transubstantiation. Which is what frightened your mom, which is the belief of the Catholic Church that when Jesus said that he would be present with them in the communion, 
they believe that the priest, when he consecrates the wafer and the wine... And we're talking about... This is, this is a confusing thing to me, mm-hmm. because priests will say, no, it's not... I'm not turning this into flesh. Mm-hmm. But also, yes, I am turning this into well, flesh. It's very it's confusing. It's not... Like, it's not going to, you know, become like you suddenly... Hey, God, this, it's so hard to discuss it's something so, like this it's without being sacrilegious. Thing. I know. It it's is just a, like... It's not like it becomes, you know, a McNugget in your mouth or something. Yes, you say it no, becomes flesh. It doesn't... Right. Phys- there are no physical changes to right. the thing. But they believe that it literally represents the blood and the body of Christ. Now, transubstantiation, which is a really interesting term. First of all, only real, like priests, I don't know what a baby priest mm-hmm. is called, but baby priests don't have this. No. Like, you have to be full priest to have the power of transubstantiation. Well, <laughs> I know, and you're making it, again, it's hard to say it without... But also, uh-huh. that's not actually... Well, it, I'm trying to be respectful, but like, well, no, they are at the same time telling okay. me this is the body and blood of Christ. But no, it's fine. It's totally so. Not. You're not a cannibal. It's fine. This, there are different. This is the Catholic way of belief, and there's a lot of. Once it's consecrated, it becomes something sacred, and. As a right, it is something sacred. Right. I don't... I was funny because I was talking to a friend of mine who's Catholic. It's like, I I could... I would want to support the Catholic Church, but I can't do confession because I don't like talking to people about what's wrong with me. And I don't think I can do transubstantiation. She's like, I haven't done either of those things. I didn't believe in either of those things in years. So, are the Catholics the only ones that believe in transubstantiation? Okay. There's a modified version of it that Lutherans and other churches accept. There is a difference between Mm -hmm. the wafers that they literally buy at, like, Smart and Final. Yeah. Like, you can buy a box of these wafers. I didn't know that you could buy them at Smart and Final. Yeah, yeah. I mean, typically you get them at, like, stores that sell religious things. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's nothing sort of special. They're like little crackers. They're almost mm. like a savory Necco wafer. They're not like they they soften on your tongue. They're like crisp little crackers. I have not had one. First of all, I am not a baptized person. As an unchurched person, I'm not mm. even even the un unconsecrated ones. I'm not just gonna break into them. So every church has a cabinet full of these wafers mm. that are nothing. Until they're like brought out and this little back and forth is performed between the priest or the pastor Mm -hmm. and the receiver of the communion. Is that right? Right. Well, see, okay. Again, to go back to the Catholic way, they believe it's changed into what they call the substance of the body and blood of Christ. It doesn't, again, it's not literal. So they have a a shade of meaning in there. Sort of like magic. It's like... And again, it's like, don't get hooked up on that, like, hung up on that term. Because, again, it's still not meaning that it literally becomes blood and food. But it represents it right. in, a, in a way that is real to the believer. Mm-hmm. Right. In a way, surpassing understanding as they described it. Now, again, the Lutheran Church... Which is has why a, an eight-year-old right. has trouble with that right, concept. Right, because it's, it's a very difficult to define because concept. Because it is, but it isn't. Wink, wink, right. wink. But it is, but it isn't. But it is... It ends up that it is, and then we cry. <laughs> right, but in where in in doing it, it's like some people believe it's actually literally the blood and body of Christ, or it's the substance of it, as they would say. The Lutheran Church believes differently. The Methodist Church believes differently. When I was taking it all the time, regularly, and I miss it, 
what it, it we understood it to be like it's a ritual that we practice to remember it's not at all at any point we believed and this is inside the evangelical church they certainly do not believe that it becomes in any way the the, the substance it's just like a communion right. with that belief right and which what, i think you uh-huh. could do here with anything yeah and and this is the reason why it's so important to to christians why it has to be taken all the time if you read in the uh, New Testament, there are some people who believed it had like these properties where people who were sick would get better from it mm. and things like that. The consecrated communion wafer in some places in history was believed almost to have magical powers. Dracula, you desecrated his coffin by putting communion wafers in it. And at the end like of the novel... consecrated ones. Right, at the end just... of the novel, Dracula, he's driven off by... I think it's a pix that has a communion wafer inside of it. And there's a, so there was a time when people believed that actually the ob- object itself, since it was representing the body of Christ had, you know, special Mystical properties. powers, or, like relics. Right. In only, there's still differences in church belief as to what it means according to church. But I think what everyone agrees on is that it's a, more a symbolic representation of this Last Supper. But there's lots of arguing about that. And to the Catholics, that belief in transubstantiation is very sacred. Right. You can be excommunicated for desecrating a, a communion wafer. So... If Catholics believe in this transubstantiation mm-hmm. and the only person who can do that is the priest, right. you you as a parishioner necessarily need the priest yeah. to to participate in this right. ritual. Is that true of an evangelical person? No. So you could mm-hmm. conceivably right. get a package of them, keep them in a safe place, mm-hmm. like, and then... On a Sunday morning, right. quietly by yourself, do this well, ritual, and would that be the same for you? I don't know that it would be the same. I know that when my mom was an active lay minister, one of her jobs was to go to houses for shut-ins and elderly people who couldn't get to church. And, and do and, that. And do that for them. It's supposed to be about sort of community, though. So it's something that you want to be as a, a part of a church. Okay. You know, when we talked about... It's funny how much it impacts people. And I'll give you a couple of the stories really quickly. When my son was born, it was a long and difficult birth, right? And it wound up with my wife at the time in the hospital after a cesarean. And my son sort of like in an ICU. Uh, he was a born after a car accident. And we were really jumpy, you know, about his, his uh, prospects. It was kind of touch and go for a little bit. And so I was running back and forth from work to the hospital. And so I stayed there with them one night. My ex-wife was asleep in a hospital bed, and I was sleeping in an empty hospital bed in the same ward. And the nurse said, are you okay? Do you need more pillows? Do you want something to eat? And I'm like, oh, I I rushed right here from work. I haven't eaten anything. And she said, let's see if we can get you something. And they came back and said, well, we couldn't find any food because the cafeteria is already closed, but we have stuff out of the vending machine. And she handed me a box of saltine crackers and some grape juice. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> I like, I seriously couldn't do it. I'm like, no, no, I can't. And I, it's, it was weird how deeply ingrained it was in my mind. I'm going, I, I, no. And then your blood sugar tanked. All right. And then I, <laughs> I mentioned it to the nurse and she's like, oh yeah, I don't think I could do it either. Cause I guess oh, she, right. like, she was part of the same tradition. But in terms of like the whole last supper thing, a more touching story than that, I had a friend named Nick. He was at church one day, and he went to a sort of a, a very mixed-race church. He himself was white, and most of the parishioners in the church were black, like his wife was. 
And they were having the whole service for, you know, the Last Supper service where they had to take communion at the end of it. But this pastor started with people washing your feet. So he'd pair people up at random. And he, uh, there was this black woman there, again, like most of the parishioners. And so he's asked to wash her feet. So he said he felt very silly and self-conscious doing this. So it's like he's Wait, kind I'm of touching this strange, strange woman. And he's like, oh, I felt like I should give her a foot massage or something. I was trying to make jokes to feel less uncomfortable. And in the middle of this, she burst out in tears, but was very quiet. And then she got up and uh, afterwards, and she didn't say a word to him. And he was sort of surprised, but it's like, it's, it's okay. Like she didn't pull away at right, all. No, she but just she was just was overcome with an emotion. And when, after the service, she comes up to him and like gives him this really long hug. And I, he thought that was by way of apology. He says, no, I, I need you to understand. My mother was raped by a white man. And she said, don't ever let a white man touch you. And so for her, this was, he said he felt really moved that at first he didn't take it seriously. And then he understood what this is supposed to do for people. It's supposed to break through those barriers and make people a part of a community. So even though I understand that for some people listening, it doesn't make sense. It seems all very strange. Right. These rituals exist for a reason. What they do for people is actually really, really real and has an impact in their lives. So when things go wrong or when, you know, and of course everyone has a funny communion story and it's like right. somebody dropped the wafer and they're trying to find it and pick like, it up and dust it off. And, <laughs> right. I'm so like, sorry, Jesus. Nobody I'm so saw sorry. that, right. So everyone has a funny story about it. But is then, there a five second rule? <laughs> right, is that on the communion wafer? Yes, yes, there is. But people tend to forget just how important it is and why these things exist and why they're important to people and why it's, out, you know, like outrageous when something goes wrong. Right. Which. There are desecration, there's a couple of desecration, or a desecration story that you well, want to talk about. Well, there was a couple about. that we talked about, and what I want to get is mostly what the purpose of this podcast is to get people to understand. Because even though, like you're saying, it's hard to accept the whole idea of the magic cracker, or, you know, it it's still, it's meaningful to people. So, as I said, in the Catholic Church at one point, you could be excommunicated for desecrating a communion wafer. Now, does that just mean not taking it from the priest. And first of all, let me let me go back mm. real quick. I've seen it where they hand it to you and you take it from mm -hmm. them and put it in your mouth. Which is I've the way that I did it growing up. Right. And then I've seen it where they put it, they put it in, your mouth. in your mouth. And is that dependent on congregation? Is that dependent on like branch of church? Branch of church often because I the Catholic church that I visited for Good Friday, everyone took the communion and he put it directly into your mouth. And it took okay. it took forever because there was a lot of people there. But other ones you take it yourself and you're there waiting and they say a separate prayer for each part of it and then you take the the, the part that you're taking. Um Oh, like everybody gets mm -hmm. it and then you all do right. it once. Like, I see. Uh Jesus said, This is my body that was broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me, eat the bread and you eat it. And then, and then but everybody's does, doing and then, that all yeah, at the right, same everyone time. Everyone does it at the same time. So it. it's and again, that's part of what makes that sense of community or togetherness is that you're performing this all together and you're right. remembering. When we talk about desecrations, though, there was a story. Now it's a, a biologist uh, who a man who was given the 2009 Humanist of the Year award. We're not talking about 
a humanist in general. These are secular humanists, which is an organization that has a certain set of beliefs. There was a student on the campus who, out of curiosity, put the wafer in his mouth and didn't eat it and just was going to bring it back to his dorm and show it to his roommate. So this is a an unchurched individual. Right, an unchurched who individual who's invited to a Catholic to a service. Mass, right. Invited. Nice. Invited. And then he put it in his mouth and thought it would be, like, he had no idea how important it was to these people. And so, or didn't care. Or didn't care. So it, there was a deacon or something who was horrified that he wasn't swallowing it. And then there was this altercation. Now, the student got angry letters. He says he got death threats. I'm not sure that's the case, but he certainly did afterwards because the Fox Channel, as it was in its infancy at the time, this is uh, 2009, uh, blew it completely out of proportion and just said, this is a desecration, this is an attack on Christian values. Okay, I was like, which uh, side are they going to take? Right. So, because <laughs> so again, they're saying that this person mm-hmm. is has started the war on Christmas. Right, I mean, pretty much. This And again, 2009, so this is the beginning of right. that, r- the beginnings of that rant that they're, they're so familiar now. So Fox News takes the side mm. of everyone who was upset right. by his behavior. And then uh, okay. Mr. Myers, the biologist, who ran a blog on science and rejecting superstition, as he puts it, invited people to steal as many consecrated wafers as they could from churches so that he could desecrate them and photograph the desecrated wafers. And, uh, or as he referred to them, the goddamn cracker. Okay. So he has people who sent him these wafers. He steps on them. He punctures them with nails. He puts them under coffee grounds and banana peels and takes pictures of them to show people. And that's how I became familiar with that story because there was a person who was following his blog on a campus who stole a communion wafer, was chased out into a parking lot. <laughs> And then, like, was I can't believe these people are so crazy about this wafer. I'm like, you don't understand what it means to people. But also, mm-hmm. of all of the people in the story, you're the craziest right. about this thing that you don't care about. Right. This is why I do not understand these sort of aggressive atheists. Right. When I don't believe in a thing, I just... Don't I, you know how much I don't think about the Loch Ness monster? Right. <laughs> Every day I don't right. think about it. Sometimes it pops up and I'm like, oh hey, that's a cool idea. Not for me. It, and then I move on with my life. I do not make it my mission uh-huh. to rail against the thing I don't. Well, you also in. don't burst out in furious rants about the Loch Ness well, monster. And then there was a, another similar situation with two Muslim journalists who were investigating. Christian and other churches existing in the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. And they took the wafer and then immediately spit it out and took pictures of it to show that they hadn't defiled themselves by taking the Christian wafer. And that turned into all sorts of news. That's going to get anti-Semitic, or that's going to get anti-Christian and Islamophobic. And and what was interesting was that Muslim leaders spoke out and said, no, these are people of the book just like we are. We had no right to do that, and we apologize on the behalf of the journalists from this magazine. They don't come in and not take their shoes off and walk all over our prayer rugs and pull the Mm -hmm. hijabs off our women like that's christianity and we don't islam have a long history of not getting along and in judaism unfortunately because uh, back in the day that was one of the the when you wanted to clean out a jewish community in europe you made the accusation they were stealing the communion wafers this is like a long-term thing because that's what outraged people wow so yeah so but again the whole reason i bring this up is i really want to get people to understand there's a, a really long and or just amazing history of what this ritual means. So 
if you're going to go into a church, if you're visiting, take it seriously, because they're taking it seriously. It means something to people, and it means something to, beyond the presence of Christ, when I was taking the communion, I really felt like I was taking this the way that my father did, or my grandparents did, or the way that people have that were in my family for centuries, going back 2,000 years. It makes a direct connection between you and them, mm-hmm. the same way as people. some people feel when they salute a flag. Or, you know, they're, they're taking part in something that was performed uh, in recognition of what they are. It's part of their identity. So not taking it seriously when you see it means that it's you're kind of not taking seriously how they identify themselves. Now that we've learned something new, let's go to a favorite segment on the show, Cannon Fodder, where we nominate some deserving individuals for our version of sainthood and thank them for being a light in the world. Patton Oswalt. Patton Oswalt. Okay. You may know him as the replacement voice of the head dog in Secret Life of Pets. I know that's a strange pull, but there you go. That's a thing that's happened. He replaced Louis C.K., who is never going to be mentioned no. again in this no, 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 no. Uh, no. section of our show. Patton Oswalt is a comedian and voice actor and regular actor. He sometimes puts his whole body into things, but mostly just his voice. Right. And he... Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> he was... He is... A, he has many agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., several. actually. That's how good he is. So he was responding to a troll. Uh-huh. A person on his Twitter page sort of attacked him. He was rightly like poking fun at a Donald Trump tweet. And this gentleman responded with, I just realized why I was so happy to see you died in Blade Trinity. And Wow. Right. That's a place to go. Then he responds, dude, I already know, because one more second of you on screen and my heart would belong to Patton Oswald. I get told this at least twice a week by Trump supporters. <laughs> it always makes me smile and I'm grateful and blessed. Shortly after that, though, he clicked through to this gentleman's Twitter page. Uh-huh. In this man who has trolled him right. uh, and is a Trump supporter, on his Twitter page, he had a fundraiser on GoFundMe seeking help after sepsis, diabetic ketoacidosis, Ooh. and coma. The comedian was moved by a baby story and decided to donate to the fundraiser and then retweeted the fundraiser. And within a day, his uh, GoFundMe had been uh, fully funded and, and more. So he has been having trouble, health troubles since early December. He'd been in the hospital for over two weeks. I was in the hospital for three days, and that was $100,000, so I can't even imagine yeah. What kind of uh, bills? What bills. kind of expenses? Yeah. So he had set sort of a modest goal of five thousand dollars to try and help defray some of this costs. And clearly, when you've been uh, hospitalized for that long, you're not back on your feet. You're not at your full earning potential. So uh, Oswald donated two thousand dollars and then ret- retweeted it. Uh, at the time of the post I'm reading, which is several weeks ago. 
516 more people had donated 11,000 more dollars to him. So hurt people hurt people. Right. And Patton Oswalt was able to sort of see through that Uh and then do good. He turned to the other cheek, that's what he did, with his wallet in his hand uh, because he has the money and the the means to do that. And then... Retweeted it to he Pat Oswalt has I imagine a lot of followers. a ton of followers right. who followed the, his lead probably not to the tune of two thousand dollars but you know and right. twenty dollars helps when you're in dire straits so wow that is, was there any reaction from the man that he that oh yeah he was the man living under the bridge he said he was a troll he was a troll, yes. That's not what that means. Well, it used to be when I was a kid. That's <laughs> Trolls lived under bridges and they ate billy goats. That's what I know about trolls. Yes. So his response, uh-huh. on Twitter, Beatty thanked those who donated. Um, quote, I want to thank everyone who came to my aid with generous outpourings and also to Pat Oswald, without whom I would not be the recipient of so much love and support. I am not a man who ever cries, but I had to wait to send, I had to wait to send this. And to quote Stuart on Big Bang, Meet tonight. Uh, he specifically also thanked Oswald on a separate post. Patton, you have humbled me to the point where I can barely compose my words. You have caused me to take pause and reflect on how harmful words from my mouth could result in such an outpouring. Thank you for this, and I'll pass this on to my cousin who needs help. Wow. A cascade. That's amazing. So, maybe also now you won't just well, that's wish death on right. people that you don't actually yeah. know. Perhaps. Well... It's a long, I it's mean, a big ask, but... But maybe uh, he will see the error in some of his ways. There's, right now it's so, I hate the overuse of the word divisive, right? But that's what it is. But that's what it is. There are literally two sides, and there's not a lot of compromise that can be made on you know, together. But I well, think... Yeah. What we can reach towards is not, because we're never going to agree on politics with some people, but we can sort of be human with them. Well, the problem is, mm-hmm. the problem as I see it is, right. one side doesn't believe in the humanity of the other side right. and is actively fighting against it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's hard to be human with somebody who looks at you and says you're not human. Well. This is when um, we recently saw a movie, uh, Hotel Mumbai, which is a film I recommend. Again, warning people ahead of time, it's very violent. It's about um, the staff of a hotel that react when a terrorist invade their hotel and threaten their guests. There's a, a scene where, and this is in uh, Mumbai, uh, there's a tourist who is horrified of the other people that are in the room who are not white. Was basically what it comes That's down to. That's basically what it is. And so she's frightened because one of the heroes in the film, who's played by Dev Patel, is sick. And she sees him and she sees his turban, she sees his beard, and she's frightened of him. And his immediate move is to go over and show her pictures on his phone. Of his family. Of his wife and his kid, which makes him not a terrorist, but makes him a human being. Right. And he even volunteers to do something amazing to put her at ease, which I'm not going to go into. but And um, she sees him as a person right. at that point. In other words, it's a person appealing to his uh, somebody else's belief in humanity in order to stop the fear. So right. that's kind of what Patton Oswalt was doing. I'm all, and also saying, right. I'm also scared. Right. I'm also I scared. I understand that you're scared. I am also scared. I'm not going to get back to, maybe. Right. Yay. Heroic virtue. Okay. And um, it doesn't take... And that's the other... The, mm-hmm. I wouldn't call what Patton did heroic. Mm. Virtuous, absolutely. Yeah. 
$2,000 to Patton Oswalt is not that much money, right? right? It's me giving $20. It's probably me giving $2. Let's be real. He's got way more money than I do. But to stop and look right. and see a person mm-hmm. and then to be like, hey, look, a person to all the, right. to, you know, to his other followers, that's well, also virtuous. What he's doing is that he's, Helping the virtue along. Yes. Right? He's going, here's your opportunity to contribute and to turn the other cheek with me. Right. Now, for my choice for today, I'm going to mention somebody who has been in the news a lot lately, and that would be Jacinda Ardern, Ardern, who is the Prime Minister of New Zealand. And this was her actions in response to the mass shootings at two Christchurch mosques in New Zealand that left 49 people dead. Her actions in response, it was a horrible thing. It was horrible to, I mean, yeah, you you wake up in the morning and you just start hearing this and the numbers start adding up. We went to bed, Uh uh, because they're on the other side of the world, we went to bed when it was starting, Mm -hmm. when it had just happened. And I was afraid to look at the news the next morning Expecting a double-digit death, right. but I was thinking teens. Yeah. And then to see 48 and then later 49 deaths. And this was uh, led by a person who believed that those people in the mosques were uh, foreign invaders. Now, this is New Zealand. New Zealand and Australia have some... Significant. Significant problematic history right. around race. What you have to remember in this case, what makes it all even more ridiculous, is that the man who shot these people was white. Um, There are no white Europeans that are indigenous to New Zealand or Australia. Nope. And this was an actual Australian who came to New Zealand to commit these murders to spark conversation. He live-streamed it on Facebook, which is horrifying. And and New Zealand's history, they're not a violent Mm -hmm. place. They had 35 homicides in all of 2017. Wow. I think we've had that many in Oakland in just the The beginning of the year. The Prime Minister is a woman who very quickly took charge of the situation. She very quickly showed her sympathy with the survivors of these shootings by donning the appropriate gear to walk into a mosque. And then she took immediate action. There were five guns used by the primary perpetrator, she said. There were two semi-automatic weapons and two shotguns. The offender was in possession of a gun license. And then she goes on to say, when the gun license was obtained, and then she goes on to change it. She's not. She's going to say, this situation would not exist if it were not for these weapons. Therefore, we are severely restricting the use of these weapons in New Zealand. And so, to wit, I saw many, right. many memes saying, outlawing them. Did they even try thoughts and prayers? This is uh, what happens when you don't have a gun lobby in your in your country. Right, you're able to pass laws. When we say again thoughts and prayers, that's become a kind of a useless thing to say, and that was part of what the verse that we cited in the very beginning that inspires without works, which is the notion that faith without works is dead. You can't say to a person, I hope your, your situation will get better and then do absolutely nothing to get it better. Right. This was taking action, decisive action to say, these weapons are, n- there's no use for military style weapons 
for civilians. There's no reason why they should have them. There's no reason why they should carry them around. We in America will fight tooth and nail. There's a part of our population to keep automatic weapons in the hands of some of the most heinous characters. The NRA is pushing for abusers and stalkers to be able to hold on to the, their weapons. But that the legislation that mm-hmm. our Congress is trying to pass is trying to make it so that if you have domestic abuse on your record, you cannot have a gun. Which is very strange. The NRA has so much support from police officers. And that's one that puzzles me because they're giving guns back to the same people who they're then putting inside of Do you the know system. how many police officers have domestic abuse well, charges against them? Yes. It would really hinder some police departments, is what I'm saying. But yes, right now, mm-hmm. they are arguing that stalkers and domestic abusers should be able to stay, stay armed. When many, I don't know the percentage, a very high percentage of women who are killed are killed by mm-hmm. people who have been right. convicted or at least charged with domestic abuse or stalking. So I don't, I, I don't know what the motivation is for... And the National Rifle Association has lately become an overtly racist organization. Uh, the advertising they're using recently has really stressed... Not has taken gone a step way too far, which is not just saying that we need the guns to defend ourselves. Now it's hunting season, is what they're describing against people who are who they describe as foreign invaders. Wow, people who they describe as uh, liberals. Um, I haven't seen any of this, but I do right. know that what they don't do is come to the aid of people who are black mm-hmm. and are trying to stand your ground. Right. Or black and are firing weapons at, or firing at their own abusers. Black women specifically. Yes. Anytime someone in the news is being brought up on some sort of self-defense charges that is a person of color, and typically Mm -hmm. it's a black person, the NRA is fucking silent as a mouse. The NRA... Which at this point has actually been infiltrated by the, the Russians. I, it's it's really a ridiculous story to think how much authority they still wield. It's no longer in... We, we te- I don't understand the reason why we still have these kind of weapons. This is an idea that comes from... It's the literalist interpretation of a document that is too old to continue using yes, a literalist interpretation. It's used, the same problem right. as literalist interpretations of the, of the Bible. But you're using these guns, right? There's a history of us, private gun ownership in this country, but it was mostly for shooting Indians. It was for genocide. There was not a reason it was that didn't also involve like, the whole... The people who said... Uh-huh the right of a militia to keep and bear arms uh-huh. did not have any concept of the type of arms that we are currently dealing with. Well, there's no reason to they have They had them. muskets. Yes. They did not have ar 15s And if they did, they would have said, no, right. people should not have those. Well, effectively, I mean, they Because are, you know what? People should not have there those. There are soldiering weapons. We shouldn't be carrying them. We should not be carrying grenades. We should not be carrying rocket launchers. This also includes the police. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, the absolutely. police should also not have these weapons. The police should not have military weapons to assault protesting crowds, as they did here in Oakland, as yes. a matter of fact. Um, I knew somebody who... Uh, I see them out with any right. of those big, long guns. Right. I don't know what they are, because guns 
are not my friends. Mm-hmm. And that inspires panic within me. Well, Why are you, the Oakland police, carrying an automatic weapon or a semi-automatic that. weapon? Taking these steps, taking these steps right away, taking these steps and making sure for the safety of our own people, regardless of whether some small lobby insists, it's always a much smaller lobby in proportion to the number of people who can get hurt. That, to me, is, again, heroic virtue. That's on a big scale, though. Here's something we're going to take a positive step forward for everybody. We don't need to have military weapons. We do not need to have citizens carrying them around. We should have the ability to stop them. What also strikes me about this attack at Christchurch is that, it once again, is people in a house of worship who should feel safe. Yes. You should, and what we've learned now is that there's no protection. You, it's happened in a Christian church. It's happened in a synagogue. It's happened in a mosque. There's no place where people can go to be safe. You should be safe here. Yes. And you, you can't. We're not safe from the terrorist attacks of any number of people or people. And, and, and let's be perfectly clear. The terrorist attacks that we've heard of this year have all taken place from uh, white nationalism has been the ideology embraced by... It hasn't been Muslims that have been attacking churches and synagogues. Nope. It has been people supporting a white nationalist ideology who have been invading sacred spaces yes. and shooting people up. Not just sacred spaces. Mm-hmm. All of the mass shootings in the United States yes. in 2018 were white nationalists. Right. Every single one of them. Right. But I'm talking about in this particular case, invading churches, they have no respect for worship, even when they claim to share the same religion as the people that they're, they're That's shooting correct. at. That's correct. So let me talk a little bit about Miss Ardern, mm-hmm. a sort of... A, religious background. Uh-huh. Um, oh yes, that's interesting too. So she was raised as a Mormon, which uh-huh. I didn't even know there were there were Mormons in New Zealand. Right. But apparently she is. She left the church in 2005 because she said it conflicted with her personal views, in particular her support for gay rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of January 2017, she identifies as agnostic. Mm-hmm. We're the same. She's also an unmarried head of state, female right. head of state. And only the second head of state to give birth while in office. Wow. Uh, she had her first child um, in June of 2018. Second elected head of government to give birth while in office after Benazir Bhutto in 1990. So it had been 28 years. Wow. And the last thing I wanted to say about her, she described herself as a social democrat. Mm-hmm. a progressive, a Republican, and in this case it is a New Zealand Republican is a person who believes that it should be a republic and not a monarchy, New right. Zealand itself, and a feminist. And she has called capitalism a blatant failure due to the extent of homelessness in New Zealand. Well, this is, in this she agrees with Pope Francis. Capitalism is a failure. It's, it's, it doesn't work out. And she advocates a lower rate, rate of immigration mm-hmm. Specifically because of infrastructure issues. New Zealand is a small island. It can only hold so many people, and it needs to build up to take those people. And she's voted in favor of same-sex marriage, believes abortion should be removed from the Crimes Act. She's opposed to criminalizing people who use cannabis and has pledged to hold a referendum on whether or not to legalize it during her first term as prime minister. Mm-hmm. And in 2018, she became the first prime minister of New Zealand to march in the gay pride parade. Oh. So she's my hero. But yes, unmarried 
female mm-hmm. head of state who left her faith because she could not reconcile right. her beliefs and the faith that she was raised in, and which is a brave thing to do. It's not... Especially since she does not identify, uh-huh. to my knowledge, from what I'm seeing, as queer. Would you, you, accepting that the faith that you... The structure of the faith that you believe in is failing you. Right. And that seems to be what her, her message is. is she, that, she seems yeah. like a person who thinks for herself right. and then lines up the things around her that... Mm-hmm that follow the things that she's figured out. Right. Which is interesting. I'll, I'll do a tiny aside right now about Jesus. You know, this person that all this is supposed to be hey, about. Hey, what's up, buddy? So he's constantly being asked questions by the religious leaders of his day. And at the time, it was divided into two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there was also sort of a third group of scribes. Um, but that's what made up the religious body that he was familiar with, who was constantly asking him questions. The Sadducees were existentialists. They believed that you lived and you died and you did good works because they were good works. The Pharisees believed, and this is an incredible oversimplification, but they believed in the afterlife. And so that you could earn a place in that afterlife because of your behavior on earth. So Jesus leaned more towards a Pharisaical teaching, but they were both about following very strict sets of rules. And they would often confront him and ask questions about those rules, including one time when he cures a man on the Sabbath and he's not supposed to do any work. And this man picked up, he couldn't walk, and Jesus touches him. He's able to walk. He carries off his bedroll. And the people are asking the man, well, you're carrying your bedroll and it's the Sabbath. You're carrying something. You're working. You're not supposed to work. Well, that's right, because very Orthodox Jew, right. Jew, uh, Jewish people even mm-hmm. now, Yeah. Like, have people come in and turn their lights and stuff on for but them, they, right? They like, went, yeah, they went way too far. The Pharisees actually said if you spit, you make a furrow in the ground, and therefore that counts as work. So You're not allowed to spit on the Sabbath either. So Jesus, at one point, there's a man who's born blind, and he sees the Pharisees watching him, so he spits on the ground, makes mud, puts the mud in the guy's eyes, and then the man can see, which is probably where we get expression, <laughs> here's mud in mud your eye. Mud in your eye, right. Um, but he did it deliberately to provoke them. What his answer was when they asked him questions like this is that he said, well, does the law exist so that we can follow it, or is the law here to help govern us? Right. Right. In other words, do the rules exist just because they exist and we have to follow them because they're the rules, or do the rules change according to our needs because the rules are used to help us get along? And that was his question to them. Like, well, is man made for the Sabbath or is the Sabbath made for man? Which direction is this supposed to go into? My disciples sometimes when they're hungry get uh, heads of wheat and roll them between their hands and eat the kernels when we're walking through a field. Does that mean that they're working? Does this mean that they're breaking the Sabbath because they're starving? Is it better to say a man who's been born blind, you know, can I cure him on the Sabbath? Is that doing a good work or a bad work? So he was constantly provoking them in a lot of ways to think about their own religion. But it comes to that, which is, if the rules aren't working for us, then there's nothing wrong with changing or bending the rules. And that was Jesus saying right. that. Not, right. you know, he wasn't into rules. He was into solutions. Yeah, if rules are more of a problem, if, if it's, rules if are, it's mm-hmm. hurting more than it's helping, right. then maybe we need to revisit. Right. Are the, rules... the rules were made by people. So right. people should be able to unmake and remake them. Right. And if Jesus is telling you it's okay to ignore the rules if you're helping somebody, if you're doing right, then what's your excuse not to do them? What's your excuse to to strict uh, to adhere strictly to rules that will hurt people? 
especially when rules are made to restrict people and their behaviors in their life. So anyhow, good for the Prime Minister of New Zealand. And that brings us to the end of this episode. If you like it, please subscribe and leave us a review. It would mean a lot. We have a new internet home, withoutworkspodcast.com. Our show notes, links to the stories we talk about, and transcripts for all of our episodes can be found there. We're also reachable at withoutworkspod at gmail.com and on Twitter at withoutworkspod and at Facebook at withoutworkspodcast. All that information is on the website as well, so go there and have a look around. Thank you for joining us, and now get out there and do something good.